Kyle. Thanks so much for joining Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we welcome Kristen Deacon, who is the Assistant Director of the Division of Pension and Benefits for the State of New Jersey. Thanks for being here, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us just as a brief overview, what is your role with the State of New Jersey? I oversee um, our state health benefits plan and school employee health benefits plan for the Department of Treasury. Um, We have about 820,000 lives um, across our lines of business. Um, We represent all state employees and retirees, including institutes of higher education. And we also um, uh, have membership in local governments and municipalities and some of our uniformed folks, uh, as well as local education districts that choose to join our plan. Awesome. So you're really invested in making sure that you're getting the best prices for the people who are part of your plans. And you've gone about it some creative ways. So I would love to hear about what your your thinking is behind the pricing. And, you know, when you're formulating these plans and making these deals, what are the most important things to you? Sure. Yeah, I would just start by saying, too, you know, as a public sector um, and a bargain state, like we have very, very generous benefits. I think you classify them as Cadillac plus plus. Um, and we're not about cost shifting to members as a way to sort of keep prices in check. So to your point about sort of being creative, um, you know, the state over the last few years has had to come up with creative solutions to make sure that that spend trajectory is sustainable for the, for the state and uh, our taxpayers. Um, you know, a couple of examples include creative, creative procurement methodology. Um, it's something that's within our control. Um, uh, for example, our PBM, our pharmaceutical benefit manager uh, contract that was rebid in 2018, um, we engaged in um, a unique process. I think we were the first public sector um, client to do this, but it was a reverse auction. Um, and I know several states have followed suit since. Um, but it really allowed, you know, the, the market forces and competition um, to be put on display in having these vendors sort of go at it to win the state's business um, and uh, resulted in a contract that's credited with saving over $1.6 billion, that's with a B, um, over the three-year life of that contract. Um, and we'll certainly engage in a reverse auction again when it's time, time to bid. Kristen, you know, the reverse auction, I think I get it, but could you describe a little bit of exactly how that works and what makes it a reverse? Yeah, yeah. Um, Usually it's something that's done on like a commodity basis, right? I know the feds do it and the Department of Defense had done it um, with commodities, but this is for a service contract. So basically we draft the technical scope um, and sort of pre-qualified bidders um, who would be able to service a client of our size, which is obviously... Um, some of the bigger players in the industry, but we pre-qualify them on a technical perspective. And then once they're qualified to sort of, you know, we understand that they could handle this business, um, we have a contract in place uh, or sort of a contract outline in place. And they put, they input in different rounds, um, various guarantees and, and pricing guarantees. So whether that's a rebate, a minimum rebate guarantee, a dispensing fee guarantee, et cetera, They'll input those items, and then ultimately our um, our system kicks out what's a true bid price. And so round one, all of the bidders, you know, they know what their price was, but it's unveiled. Um, so they'll see how they stack up against bidder A, B, C, and D. 
Um, and they're like, all right, I got to sharpen my pencil a little bit. And I, I sort of analogize it to a boxing match. The way that we've sort of seen this play out is that first round they're, they're, you know, they're seeing where they land against their competition. The second round, they're tinkering around the edges and the third round, the gloves come off. They get really aggressive on pricing in order to win our business. And it's a great, it's great because as the, you know, as the potential client, you know, they're competing against each other for our business. And if you have any other public sector folks listening, you know, public procurement can be a beast of, you know, a time trying to get qualified bidders in and then do the evaluation. This comes down to the numbers. And uh, we see when that happens, um, we get really positive outcomes. Is that something that employers or other groups that aren't as large as your state could do? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the technology's out there. Um, I know some have done it, um, uh, basically, a you know, a homegrown um, process of a reverse auction. We did use a vendor to conduct art just because of the sort of complexity of our plans. We have over 20 plans across all of our um, populations. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's something that can be scaled to a large or small employer. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It feels like anybody could be doing it, right? A hospital could do it, a payer could do it. As everybody's always right. looking for vendors, and the standard process is RFP, and now we'll get you know right. submitting. So that's re that's really fascinating what you've described. Uh, I'd love to ask Kristen. You had also shared with us at the outset uh, when we were talking about uh, some innovative strategies you've been developing in the in the provider arena as well. Maybe mm -hmm. you could share some uh, some thoughts on that. Sure, sure. I'll talk about first, I guess we're talking about procurement and creative strategies, um, our TPA contract that has really resulted in um, substantial savings being booked by the state over the last couple of years, and also some direct relationships with provider groups that we're exploring right now. Um, but first on the contracting piece, um, we have, uh, as a state, sort of decided to move away from reviewing your third-party administrator services um, and evaluating based on a discount guarantee. I always, um, I like to say, I'll take a transparent price um, over a 99% discount any day of the week. So moving away from that sort of elusive discount analysis and towards a unit cost guarantee um, when we're doing our review of the bids and then also holding that bidder to that unit price cost guarantee year over year. So if you bid that this CPT code or set of CPT codes or DRG um, was this price, you're now going to tell me that that price isn't going to go up on an aggregate basis over year over year over year. And we've, we've seen that that's resulted in substantial savings. And it really drives the TPA to drive a harder bargain with those provider systems. Um, uh, from a direct sort of relationship with providers um, perspective, uh, the state is looking to partner with um, and roll out in the next plan year bundled pricing and um, centers of excellence approach across our across our population. I mean, we are very much of the opinion that we want our members going to high quality providers. Um, my good friend Al Lewis, who uh, who I find highly entertaining, and I'm sure a lot of people on the listening know of him, um, taught me very early on. He said. The number one cause of spinal fusion surgery is a failed spinal fusion surgery. So it just sort of hammers home the importance of 
getting to the right provider in the first instance, um, not only is it going to result in better health outcomes for your members, which we you know, care about, um, but it's also good for the bottom line, right? We don't want failed surgeries. We want the best of the best performing um, specialty care on our members um, because ultimately it's, it's better for everybody. Um, so we're definitely looking to, to um, partner with some of these really high quality, innovative providers in our system. We have a lot of great systems in the state of New Jersey um, that have made great investments in their um, quality uh, of care. Um, and we want our members to, to make sure that they're incentivized to go to those providers. Does your method create that same sense of positive competitiveness? Can, I can't say the word right now. <laughs> competitiveness between providers who are like, oh my gosh, I love what the state's doing with their people. I want to be part of that group. I want to be on their centers of excellence, on their provider list. Do you see like now there's sort of a buzz within the provider community to be part of your networks? Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually just hosted um, a health benefit summit with our consultant in partnership with our consultant, the upside effect. And um, one of, one of the days of that summit was dedicated to listening to and collaborating with and learning from our provider community. And, you know, seriously, like they're all over here saying me first, me first, we want to partner because we believe in our outcomes we will take risks. We want to take risks because we believe. And, you know, it's really about, you know, rising, rising the tide, right? Not sort of, um, you know, moving to the lowest common denominator when it comes to quality, because they, you know, they do want to compete. They do, you know, their businesses too. They want market share, but if they get market share by higher quality outcomes, we all win, right? So that's really the, I think the goal um, and we're excited about the halo effect that comes from a population our size. You know, we represent across the SHBP, so the population we represent, and Medicaid, the state of New Jersey pays for over 50% of the births in our state. Um, you know, if we can get our maternity, maternal centers of excellence and, and better health outcomes from our moms and babies, like that benefits every citizen in the state of New Jersey from an outcomes perspective. Tremendous. I think you're bringing such a fresh perspective. Uh, I, I guess I th it feels like a breath of fresh air because as we uh, talk about this, uh, there's a lot of heaviness in the air. Uh, unfortunately, it tends to be uh, feel like, well, it's 2021 and we haven't made enough progress and we still have some of the same issues and they've been going on for decades. Uh, is the industry really ready for change? Are the incumbents too entrenched? And yet you're bringing a completely different perspective. You know, I know that these are the pockets of excellence that are emerging, uh, but maybe if we take it up to that level a little bit, you know, how do you think about what you're doing in the big picture of what the overall industry has been trying to accomplish over a long period of time? Where are we really at on this journey? And, uh, and how, how can, you know, organizations like yours, you know, push it even further? I mean, you raise a good point about sort of the entrenched interests and, and the industry being ready for change. I think we're talking a lot about change. I think we're talking a lot about ideas and there are some really innovative employers um, and groups out there doing interesting work, but as sort of that, or sort of an industry, like what is the catalyst for, for more forward momentum in that change? Um, I think it's coming. It feels like it's it's almost here. I don't think it's happened yet. Um, but at 17% of the GDP, it's got to, it's, you know, whether 
whether we're recognizing that the dollars that we're spending on healthcare, right? And then, you know, we just got our, uh, you know, mortality rates have gone down and we have to start thinking about what we're paying for, right? We wanna have the best healthcare system in the world. We wanna have the most um, research and development, the best drugs, the most, um, com- you know, the most forward thinking therapies. Um, but we also need to understand like the value that we're getting from it. And when I say value, I don't mean the highest cost thing. I mean, value, like what value are we getting from the real dollars that we're spending and lost opportunity costs, whether it's addressing climate change or any of the other national priorities we have, like 17% of the GDP is mammoth. Um, and I do think that as self-funded employers, large corporations, states, recognize that they can, like it is their responsibility to turn that needle and pay attention as fiduciaries. I think that's ultimately gonna be where, um, where that catalyst, that moment happens where we're pushing. And we know, I think we know what that roadmap looks like. It's how quickly we can get there. Interesting. Very interesting. So Kristen, maybe if I, uh, Stephanie, if you don't mind, I'll ask a follow-up because it feels like you know, we've been on this precipice before and we've had the sense that it's mm-hmm. going to happen and it was the managed care competition and then it was pay for performance and a variety of different things. But Kristen, it does sound like you think something may be different, maybe boiling. Although, of course, we haven't, you're saying we haven't reached the catalytic point yet. So what feels different to you right now? Yeah, um, what feels different is the fact that, you know, all those transitionary moments or sort of the precipices that you were just describing occurred at a time when health benefits and health benefits oversight management um, was really primarily um, or almost entirely um, in the purview of like a CHRO, Chief Human Resource Officer, or, um, you know, somebody in that sort of role. And what I, what I see is different now is it's not only the CHRO, but it's the CFO, right? Like as companies like Starbucks pay more for health benefits than they do for coffee beans, right? Um, somebody's paying attention and, and saying this, if you're a CFO or, you know, you're in the finance department of your, your company respo- responsible for P&L, like you've got to pay attention to this. And as it continues, we can't, we can't just continue on our trajectory. And so what feels different to me is that, you know, groups like the Pacific group on uh, business group on health and some of these other, like employers are paying attention and the CFO is paying attention. And, and, and I don't just mean the CFO, I mean, you know, those that sort of serve in that role, that feels different to me. And I think if we start to treat our healthcare spend like we would any other line item in our budget, right? Look at, okay, how much did I pay for that claim and why? Is that reasonable? What oversight am I having over that claim? What are these vendor fees? Like, these are all questions that would be standard in any other line item. Um, so I think, I do think that that's um, absolutely gonna be a part of the catalyst that gets us there quicker. Definitely sounds like there's a collaborative approach, which again is a theme that we hear in so many of these interviews that we do. The change makers are always collaborating, not tearing down one another. Right. And so along with that, you're getting on, everybody's on board, whether, you know, from the C-suite inside of the company, everybody's saying, okay, we realize this is important. 
to the providers in your community saying, oh my gosh, we want to be on that list. But then the patients, you know, all of the people on your plans, they definitely have some responsibility too, because they have to learn how these work. So how are you reaching to them and letting them know, first of all, the value and the work that you're doing, but also their responsibility in this? Yeah. So that's such a, it's such a great question. And it's so challenging um, because as an industry and it's an industry I didn't grow up in, but uh, healthcare, um, it's an industry that we don't have a lot of trust from the consumer, right? Um, when a healthcare consumer thinks about their insurance company, right? I don't know that they think, wow, this company really has my best interests in mind from a population health perspective, right? We have to regain that trust. And so whether it's a communications campaign, um, a, a reform that's being um, implemented or init initiative, you always have to come at it from the lens of how do I build trust? And not only how do I build trust, but being very careful not to lose trust because again, we haven't done a great job. Um, you know, in my role with the sort of diverse population that we have, whether it be in a demographic um, from an age perspective or our members are across the country because we have retirees all over the place, um, and even the populations we serve in, you know, whether it's a uniformed um, union group or the teachers, um, it has to be multi-channel. And we rely heavily on our stakeholder groups and our union groups and labor groups because a lot of like that's a trusted source for people. So you have to find the trusted source for that individual, equip that trusted source with good information. Um, and I do think that we we're at a place where we need to start um, trusting the capacity of our healthcare consumers um, to be smart, right? And, and informing them and not speaking at them, but speaking to them, um, I think is really important, again, just to rebuild that trust. But it's a heavy task. It's a heavy task. It's taken years to get us where we are. It'll take a while to get us back um, on track. Uh, um, and it's a new track. It's an uncharted territory, if you will. So um, you know, read Marshall Allen's book, buy it for all your employees. Um, I, you know, it's so funny that as an employer, like, would you ever give an employee a $20,000 piece of equipment and say, good luck with that. I'm just going to let you do your thing. Right. Um, yet we give them these very generous health benefits with nothing to equip them. You know, half of the American public doesn't know the difference between co-insurance or co-payment. Right. Yet we're giving this this tremendously valuable and potentially crippling, right? When when we're talking about um, you know health healthcare debt, um, with really no no good information, that twenty dollars you'll spend on a book will pay off in dividends. I'm sure on your bottom line as a company um, down the road. I love what you had to say about trust. Uh, you know, in, in my world of consulting and change management, it really all, all comes back to trust as well. And in, in you said it right that, you know, it takes a long time to earn that trust. So, you know, we have to be patient. Uh, and then something, you, you know, you said earlier, you know, before we even started the interview, you said uh, transparency uh, is really just the beginning. You know, and, and as I think of it, transparency is kind of a uh, you know, precursor and requirement for trust. Um, so we're just at the really beginning stages, maybe, of the change I think you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that transparency and trust connection? And where do we need to go over the next, let's call it, 
uh, a decade plus, uh, not mm -hmm. to put too much pressure on ourselves to continue building on this journey. Yeah, I mean, you're, you use the word precursor. That's, you know, I sort of say it's a condition, like it's a precondition to, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, I find tremendous value in transparency. Transparency for transparency's sake is not going to get us there. Um, but it's, it's necessary. And I, and I will tie it back to trust, right? Because we've told consumers in the healthcare marketplaces, it's too complicated. You know, let us figure out the fine, like, it, you know, uh, you don't need to know the price because it's just, it's too complicated. It's too much. And we've told employers that too, who are actually funding the bill, right? I think that day is over. Like, I, again, going back to like, my, I don't know, I want to know the discount. I want to know the price. Um, it's not that complicated. Um, it's perhaps compli complicated by your own making because it might serve your purpose. But um, yeah, I think transparency is like fundamental to then build um, off that foundation, um, you know, our path forward. And like you said, it's, a, it's you know, we're not going to fix healthcare, right? Healthcare, it's, it's almost... Um, it's an evolution, you know, if you approach it from the um, sort of mindset that we're gonna fix it and forget it, that's what got us into this problem, right? Like that's why we find ourselves where we are. We, it's a constant evolution. Um, we will have to, we have to do better. We have to manage that path forward. Um, there are no quick fixes. That's the simple truth. It's gonna be a lot of hard work. It's gonna take a lot of leadership. It's gonna take a lot of, um, testicular fortitude by our politicians to take on entrenched interests, um, but we can get there, but it is, it is going to be hard work and there is no easy fix. When somebody is dealing with this and just maybe they're in a new role and they say, oh my God, these benefits are out of control. We have lots of claims, we're paying, paying too much. What is their first step? What is the number one bullet point when they're looking to make a change in their plan and better serve everyone involved? You have to not be scared of change right? Um, you have to think about, again, forward progress, not as disruption and abrasion and all of the negative terminology that for some reason we've used in the industry to talk about smart things that we need to do and whether that's mandatory formulary. Um, there are um, words that we can use to describe forward progress and the narration it will help our members understand what we're doing. And I use the example of like the drug pipeline. When we move our members to a formulary with a vigilant drug list that has a mandatory generic provision, it's not because we're trying to take something from you. And it's not because we want to pocket that money. It's because there's a drug pipeline out there with a $2 million therapy that is imminent. And it's life-changing and it's life-saving. If you want your members to have access to those types of um, life-changing and life-saving drugs, we have to do the smart things today and think of it as, again, forward progress, not, not moving backwards or taking something away. Thank you so much. I appreciated this conversation and we really are so thankful that you were here to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. As you can tell, I love, I, I'll talk anytime. <laughs> this is fabulous, Kristen. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you all for watching. Bye-bye.